Good morning. Um, if, uh, if you're new, if you've only been a couple times, if this is your first time, we are in the middle of a study called the Jesus Stories where we are going through the gospel writers. If you did not know, there are four gospel writers, four writers who specifically set out to write about the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. A lot of the same stories, but different perspectives. We've covered some in Matthew. We've covered some in Mark. We are on to the book of Luke. Now, the book of Luke is interesting for a couple different reasons. Luke was, number one, a physician, which leans to kind of a medical vocabulary. And so his Greek is different than Matthew's Greek. And so it's kind of interesting, Greek being the language that it was was written in, originally written in. And so it's really kind of interesting because Luke uses some medical terminology that other guys wouldn't use. The other thing that's interesting is Luke was a Gentile, which is also kind of... uh, a crazy thing considering this was a Jewish rabbi and this is a Gentile writer another thing about Luke is this along with his huge vocabulary he's a great storyteller but not just a good storyteller in the sense of oh he can tell a story but in the sense of he can paint a picture with his words here in a couple of weeks we're going to talk about one of the most vivid and popular uh, parables that Jesus told and it's from Luke's perspective called the Good Samaritan. And we use that term all the time because there's a picture that goes with it. Luke could paint pictures with his words. What Luke is writing about and the perspective that Luke is writing about takes us all the way back to this one little bitty piece in the very beginning of the book of Luke. This was not an annal that he was putting out there to say, um, I want everybody to know about this. This was a personal letter to his friend, Theophilus. And so God has in some way preserved this so that we can read, look over their shoulders and their correspondence and understand what would this kind of friendship be like for somebody to care so much about you that they would sit down, they would write the entire story of Jesus and mail it to you. That's kind of a cool thing. Time Magazine ran an article in uh, 2016 that said the secret to happiness. It was talking about the secret to happiness. And so it started off with this Chinese parable. Let me read it to you, this little Chinese uh, quote. If you want to be happy for an hour, take a nap. If you want to be happy for a day, go fishing. Mm, That's nice. If you want to be happy for a year, inherit a fortune if you have that option. If you want happiness for a lifetime, help somebody else. Help somebody else. For centuries, the greatest thinkers have suggested the same thing. Happiness is found in helping others. Have you ever noticed when you send your kids to grandma's house, when they come back, they're worse individuals than when you sent them? You've seen that? Like, my babies come back, and no lie. Like, they're like, I want you to feed me grapes, and I want you to fan me with a palm branch. So after about two days of that, I'm ready to fan them with a palm branch, you know? <laughs> like, we're done. You're going to get fanned. There's no, we're going to go old school. This is not going to work. Because why? The, the, their status has been elevated. You see, in my house, Here's the hierarchy. It works like this, which, by the way, I I think I could argue this from a biblical standpoint. If this is not your practice, maybe start kind of putting this in place. 
The husband-wife relationship is the most important relationship in the home than the children. Yes, yes, I see it. Some of you are like, oh, no, <laughs> love it. Yeah, it's the way it's wound up. It's the way it's supposed to be. I think you can argue that from a, from a scriptural standpoint. But something happens. See, we love children. In the first century, they didn't see kids like we see kids. We worship little Billy. You don't believe me? Go to the ball field. Go down to the soccer field. Every little, every little Billy and Susie is the most important human being on the planet. And I understand this steps on toes because this is what it means. If I'm doing this and I'm making my children at the top inside my home and I'm going to move them from there, this is going to hurt feelings. Yes, it's going to hurt feelings. It's going to break little hearts and they'll get better and now you can go talk to your wife and you can get to know her again. Hi, Jared, nice to meet you. Oftentimes this is, this is what happens. But the kids, when they come back, they're worse. Why? Well, because they went away, and all of a sudden their status changed to where at my house, listen, they come after me and mom have had some conversation. They don't come running in there getting crazy. And when they do, I kind of lose the plot a little bit. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Big people are talking. Calm down. Calm down. Because when we care about somebody, the natural condition, the human condition, is to be a taker. Always. And so what we do is we have these little kids and we treat them like this all the time. And I'm not saying you should treat kids bad. I'm saying you should love your kids. You should be tender with your kids. You should be gentle with them. You should speak with them. You should have all sorts of wonderful conversations with them. But at some point, there's got to be instilled this idea that I'm not a big person and there's big person things going on. First century was a little bit different. So because this is kind of the hierarchy and this is kind of the way it works at my house, if that gets kind of messed up, we have to start from the beginning, which works like this. Your mother was talking. Don't be disrespectful. Go in the other room. Don't interrupt. I can't tell you the number of times that they come back and they're polite. They're so sweet. But when they come from grandma's house, no, so I don't know what they, I think all weekend long, this is what grandma did. You're the most important person in the world. You're the most important person in the whole world. There's no one as great as you. You're so tall and so mature. You deserve a car. You should tell your dad to buy you a car. Like, well, I'm only 10. You should still have a car and it can wait because you deserve it because you're special. And when they come home, they're just like, you know what, dad? I'm special. And I'm like, you're never going back there again. We're done. <laughs> this is not, this isn't happening. This isn't happening. No more. Luckily, my kids have gotten to the age to where they've kind of outgrown this, or they've realized, like, if we go home like this, Dad's going to go postal. Like, <laughs> just keep this. No, because he, he'll, he'll lose it. Why does this happen? Because we are takers. We always want to elevate our status. Always. It doesn't matter what you do. You always want to elevate your status. This is the natural human condition. The Israelites were no different. We always find something to complain about, and we always want to elevate our status. Which the two go hand in hand. When Israel was in Egypt, they cried out, they were whipped, and they were forced to build Pharaoh's empire for 400 years. And they continued to cry out to God during this 400 years. Please save us. All we want is freedom. All we want is freedom. 
Finally, Moses shows up. God brings somebody in. Gets them out of Egypt. They ain't in the desert a week. And the Israelites are just like, you know what, are we going to just keep eating this? Do we, do we have to keep eating manna? I mean, at least there we had onions. Couldn't God, like, pop an onion up somewhere? They complained about God. They, came, they complained about God's food. They complained about God's word. They, came, they complained about God's uh, leader. Like, it was endless. All they did was complain. It happens to my kids. It happens to the Israelites. It happens in churches. And unfortunately, as much as I hate to admit it, it happens to me. For I want to elevate my status. I want to put myself above somebody else. And that is a constant fight for all of us. This is kind of interesting. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment in the scripture? His response was, Hear, O Israel, your God, he is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, all your strength. And then he says, Jesus doubles back. And the second one, it's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So it seems to me like from the minute we are born, God's word is at war with the self-centeredness that exists inside of us. At war with it. Because when you are born, we cry. Mommy gives milk. You get older, you crash your bike. Mommy and daddy come running. Oh, Billy, are you okay? Oh, my goodness. We should take him to the emergency room. It's an abrasion, Mom. Calm down. Then we grow up. We surround ourselves with people who are just going to pamper us all the time. We get in this mode to where, you know what? I just want to be a taker. I don't want to be a giver. just want to be a taker. I'm important. My needs are more important. And it seems like it's just been at war with us since we were born. Time Magazine article goes on to say this. With the MRI technology that we have today, there was a study done. And it said, acts of serving, acts of giving, acts of putting somebody else, uh, their needs and their importance in front of your own is directly connected to the brain's reward system. And with MRIs, here's what we can see. In an act of giving, of sacrifice, do you know what part of the brain lights up in the machine? The same one that lights up when you embark in marital intimacy and when you eat food. Even our biology is screaming to us. Do you want to feel better? Yes. I should probably have a Snickers. No! Not the point. I have a Snickers, but that's not the point. Do you want to feel better? Yes. Serve other people. God, in all of his wisdom, hardwired us so that we would serve other people. Yet, we are so self-centered. We only care about us, and then we're depressed because of it. When God has lined up every single thing we need so that when we give, when we sacrifice, we are content. It lights up the brain's reward system. You get a shot of dopamine. Hey, high five. Good job, body, for doing the right thing. 
Good job, heart, for doing the right thing. God wired it this way. So this is a learned behavior. This is a learned. If it was like anything else, we would just naturally do it. But this is a learned behavior. That we learned to be selfish. We learned to be self-centered. It goes on to highlight six different tips to help you have a more giving lifestyle. They're worth sharing, so from Time Magazine, let's preach the sermon. <laughs> Number one, find your passion. When you love what you do, you're more inclined to care about other people's dreams. If you hate what you do, then you're never excited to see somebody else succeed. You know? I hate my job. That guy loves his job. That guy's an idiot. You know, this is typically the way, typically the way it works. He's dumb. He just doesn't know it. Number two, give your time. We don't all have uh, huge homes. We don't all have the same amount of money. We don't all have the same amount of gifts. But we all do have the same amount of time. We can give our time. We are on a fair plane when it comes to that. People need time. There are people who need your time. We can give time. Um, number three, give to organizations that have transparent aims and results. Support things that you believe in. Support things that have benefited you to where you can look at it and you can say, I see a direct result in what we're doing. Like, I'm happy to give to this. I'm happy to help in this situation because it's going down the right, it's going down the right path. Number four, find ways to integrate your interests and skills with the needs of others. You like cars? You like working on cars? Is it a thing you do? Like, I like doing that. That's good. You like doing sheetrock? I don't, and I'm bad at it. So if you like to do it, i got a job for you. Um, if... Uh, if you like teaching and that's the thing you do, okay, but great. Then find a way to serve in that area. If you can listen well, then find a way to serve in that area. What are the things that you excel at? Number five, be proactive, not reactive. I love this one. If you find a way, if it's, if it's money, if it's time, if it's whatever it is, that you're going you're gonna to budget into your life and you put that out there, you won't feel guilty when the lady at Walmart says, do you want to uh, donate a dollar? And you say no. You know how that happens? They're like, oh, okay, here's your total uh, $127 for Twinkies and cabbage. Do you, um, you want to give a dollar to the Girl Scouts? Uh, no. No, I, I, don't, I don't want to. No, 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 I don't. I don't, I don't want to. No. If you're proactive, then you don't have to worry about it. See, that's why some of you uh, use the tire and lube entrance when there's a bake sale in the front. I know, you, I know your game. I know your game. You say, oh, they're, they're selling cakes. Go to the back. Go to the back. That's what I know. I know your game. Uh, last one, number six. Don't, do not be guilt-tripped into giving. If somebody guilts you into giving to them, if somebody is, uh, they leverage you or manipulate you with whatever it is to give to them, do you think you will stay in this relationship? No. Do you think you will stay committed to the cause? No. You know what? I'll give you $20 to get off my stoop. How about that? This is the way we react to it. And so Time Magazine shares, this is what you do. Don't give to things that just guilt you all the time. If it's about, you know, somebody's just cranking your arm. Oh, okay, yeah, 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 I'll give. Just stop showing the, the dogs on TV with the Sarah McLaughlin song. You know. So anyway, so that's from Time Magazine. I thought they were somewhat helpful. So today's passage. Luke chapter 9, verse 46 through 48. Let's read this. It's only three verses, and we'll jump right in. 
Verse 46, an argument started among the disciples as to which one of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child, had him stand beside them. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among all of you, he is the greatest. Now listen, here is just, a, just an observation. Just an observation. About the last four stories, like this verse here comes off the heels of about four different situations where the disciples really screwed something up kind of big. Most recently, they come off the mountain of transfiguration. There's a man, who, there's a boy um, who's demon-possessed, and they come to the disciples. Can you please cast out this demon? And so they're like trying their hardest, like whatever, whatever you're doing. Trying their hardest to cast these demons out. That's not happening. Can't get him. Jesus shows up and with a word rebukes the demon and it goes. And then now, here they are. You know, actually, I think I'm the greatest disciple. The weirdness of the thing is even more apparent when you look at the Greek word for argument. This was like a philosophical debate with reasons. Like here, I got, let me give you my three, my PowerPoint presentation on the three ways I think I would be a super disciple. Wow. Do you know this guy? Like you got a picture in your mind. Don't, if it's me, I don't want to know. But if it's somebody else, um, you, can, you, can, you can tell me later. But no, I'm just kidding. This is strange, isn't it? That they're going to argue about messing up all this other stuff, unable to do it. And then right here they are, just outside of Jesus hearing, like, no, I am. And so like in my mind, you know, my mind kind of gets carried away sometimes. <laughs> this is what I imagine. Peter's like, yo, 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 you know I'm, I'm number one. And the other 11 are just like, whatever. Like, you're the, you talk too much, you know? You're always rushing into, oh, yeah, no, you're not number one. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. He calls me the rock. Like, I'm like Dwayne Johnson, you know? <laughs> like, I'm the real deal. And then John's like, I'm the youngest. He picked me because I'm a prodigy. Oh, right. He picked you because your mom and dad didn't care about you. That's why, and you just run around the streets. That's why he picked you. No, no, no. I'm the youngest. I'm the prodigy. And then Matthew steps up, and he's like, whoa, 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 boys, listen. I was a tax collector when Jesus found me, and even that didn't stop him from getting a number one draft pick, right? Like, I'm number one. And they're having this conversation, however the conversation went, having this conversation. Jesus does not hear the conversation, but he knows what this conversation is. He says, and he goes, and he gets a child. Little scroungy little boy brings him over, and stands the little boy up beside him. It's pretty powerful. Pretty powerful. Here's the problem that I have. As stupid as I think that conversation is that the disciples are having, I've had that conversation. What's crazy is the word that they're talking about, who's the greatest disciple, is the word mega, super disciple. Uh, 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 right? This is the word. Who is mega in the room? 
And I've had this conversation. And I wish I hadn't had this conversation. I'll be transparent. I'll share it with you. But I've worked in several churches. Worked in several. It's hard for me to not get proud about this one. You, working with Luke, the elders, it's hard for me to keep my head like, people are like, uh, oh, I think they go to a different church than us. That's too bad. Like, it goes through my head. Like, this is the kind of stuff, that's too bad. It's not, like, I don't get happy like, oh, at least they're going to church. And even if I said, at least they're going to church, like, they're still in a, I hold this in high regard. Well, at least they go to church. Like, that's just it's terrible. And I wish I wasn't like that. But I have to battle that thing. Because in my most honest moments, here's what I know. Everything that God has done here that has made this healthy is Him. It's Him. It's 100% Him. From the elders who lead the church, the staff that works here, to you who come here, to you who volunteer, God has had a hand in all of that. Listen, if there is one of you who are here because, oh, Jared, he really makes this thing work. You're an idiot. You are just an idiot. You know nothing. How many times do I leave the projector off when we need to have the projector on? How many times do the words not come up when they're supposed to be words? How many times do I not put batteries into the microphone? How many times do I forget to put songs in the day? All the time. God has done this. My response should be not to try to elevate my status, but to be thankful for the very fact that I even get to be on the team, to be able to be beside other people who have the same end goal. That's where that has got to change in me. I saw, I saw a perfect illustration. I hope you don't mind if I share this. Perfect illustration of this thing the other day. A good friend of mine, his son is riding a four-wheeler, and his son is so excited about riding this four-wheeler, but he's also very excited about the people who are watching him be excited riding the four-wheeler. See, it's one thing to be excited about what you're doing. It's another thing to be going, you know, 20, excited about the people who are watching you go 20. I don't think he ran over anyone, but it was close several different times because he was so excited. He wanted, he wanted us to watch. Are you watching? Are you watching me? Are you checking me out? Are you watching me? There's the house. Almost clips it. There's the friends. Almost clips them. Are you watching me? Finally, his dad stops him and pulls him over there. And he says to him this, keep your eyes forward. Pay attention to what you're doing. Keep your eyes forward. We cannot afford to be distracted by ratings and status and success and all the markers of are we this or are we that? Am I this? Am I that? Do I make enough money? Is this church big enough? Do we need a new building? Should we put in carpet? You know? 
We cannot afford that. Here's what we can afford to do. Keep our eyes forward. What is the problem with trying to take a look into status and see where you rate? What's the, what's the problem with it? Isn't this why we like gossip? This is why we gossip. It's all tied together. Our reason for gossip is because we took our eyes off of Jesus a long time ago. Now we just want to make sure we're better than the next guy. This is why you love the Allen County Sheriff's page, right? Uh-huh, I see the shame on your face. <laughs> really? Really? This is why we gossip. This is, why we do, this is why we do what we do. This is why we talk about all these things. This is why you know words like Benifer and Brangelina. Some of you are like, I don't know those words. Some of you do know those words. This is the reason why. Why? Because we want to know status-wise. We want to know. Where do we rate? By the very action of taking a look, surveying the landscape, by that very action, you confess to taking your eyes off of Jesus. By that very action, you are saying, I gave up following Jesus a long time ago. Now I only care if I'm better than you. And Jesus comes over and he says, do you see this little guy right here? Now you got to understand, first century Palestine, a Jewish rabbi goes and picks up a little boy, brings him into the group. Something is weird about this deal. This is unheard of, unheard of. Children were seen as just above the mutts that roamed the streets. That's how they were seen. Because it was based on contribution. What do, you con what do you contribute to your family? Well, if you start at the top and you move your way down, I mean, maybe it jostles between, you know, mom and dad, husband and wife. But then you move on down. The older kids, they may be a little more productive, can bring something. The younger ones, a little less. And then you got these little bitty ones. And in first century Palestine, this was the idea, like... What are they worth? Can they do anything? Well, they cry and take. And that's how they were seen. And for a Jewish rabbi to grab a little boy and bring him over to the side, and for him to say, do you want to know who is the greatest among you? Do you want to know? Check this out. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes or accepts this little child in my name welcomes me. Whoever accepts those within the society or our culture who are deemed least productive, bottom of the food chain, most forgotten about, brushed aside, marginalized, whoever that is, they are number one. In the kingdom of heaven. How do you get there, Jesus? The math is weird. I'll be honest. The math is weird. But it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. We befriend people who can do something for us. We are friends with people who have something to offer us. And I think if you got honest with all of your relationships, you could find a handful of people in your life who you think to yourself, these people, I only keep them around because it's good for my job. 
I only keep these people around because, you know what, I'm related to them. I only keep these people around because I'm otherwise going to be lonely. But it's not about a relationship. And so what Jesus is saying is this. When you take the needs of somebody else who can give you nothing in return, then you found me. Then you found me. Because that is done from a pure heart. That's done from a pure heart. There's nothing they can give you in return. And Jesus says, when you take the least among you and you care about them, you welcome Jesus. And then the math moves on like this. And when you welcome Jesus, that means God is then welcomed into your life. And that means that they, the child, is the greatest. Here's why. Because can you usher in the presence of God as quickly as a child? Because we're adults, and we get hung up on how we can manipulate one another, right? We get hung up on how in the world can I get what I want, and I can be selfish, and I can do this, and you can do what I need you to do. And we get hung up inside of these roles and these weird patterns in our relationships, and little kids don't. If you go down and you spend any time in a homeless shelter, you know what you will, you will not find? The homeless is homeless. The homeless. I mean, you're talking broke and destitute. But it doesn't change the human condition. I picked up a guy on a, on a way out of town one time. I may have shared this with you. We're headed to Wichita. He needed to get to Wichita. Picked him up. He climbs in. It's cold. It's kind of rainy. He was walking on the side of the road, kind of tattered. I had a, I had a buddy with me. I said, uh, you want me to swing back around and get you a cup of coffee, something to eat from McDonald's, something like that? No lie. <laughs> McDonald's coffee? Are you kidding me? I wasn't offended. I was shocked. He says, no, I only drink good coffee. I have a grinder in my backpack. You got a grinder, but you ain't got no house? Here we gotta have a talk about priorities. For real? No. I drink real coffee. Not McDonald's coffee. Real coffee. It's so hardwired in us to want to find a way to be better. And all the while, Jesus is saying, no. Find somebody who's tiny. Let me introduce you to my friend over there? Hi. Here we go. <clears throat> What's your name? Olivia. Olivia? Yeah. Are you a big deal? No. No. Are you a big deal? No. Are you a big deal? Don't even know if they're a big deal. Don't even know. You ask your mommy and daddy, she's a big deal. You can sit right there and you can tell. She's kind of a big deal. No, I'm not a big deal. Not a big deal at all. 
John 3.30 says this. He, it's John the Baptist speaking of Jesus. He must increase. I must decrease. Meaning this. If Jesus is going to be fully known in the world, I must continue to reduce myself more and more all the time so that the fame of Jesus becomes worldwide. I have to continue to make myself smaller and smaller like a child all the time until I'm out of the way. In doing that, we fulfill the law of Christ. Thanks for your help. Appreciate it. You want to go back and sit down? You know what's cool? We didn't, we didn't talk about it. We didn't, we didn't script it. I didn't ask her before. Are you a big deal? No. It's just a tiny thing. It's pretty good. Let's pray.